Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this event by the LSE Civil Service Government and Public Policy Alumni Group in collaboration with British Government at LSE, run by Tony Travers. I'm delighted that we are joined by Professor Richard Legrand, sorry, Julian Legrand even, who's the Richard Titmus Chair of Social Policy here at LSE, and alumnus Mark Coburn. So without further ado, I will hand over to... Julian, and enjoy your evening. Thank you. Thank you, Charlotte. Um, yes, I'm here sort of on behalf of British Government at LSE, which is a, a major initiative led by the school's government department to coordinate and encourage and expand activities um, within LSE relating to the government and politics of the United Kingdom. Um, and in that context, um, we're delighted to have with us uh, Mark Hoban, who is a prominent member uh, of the Government of the United Kingdom. Um, he was actually uh, elected as Member of Parliament in 2001, I think, uh, but was um, even more distinguished uh, as a BSc uh, Econ, I think, in 1985, um, uh, an alumnus of the LSE. Uh, he's, uh, he was Financial Secretary of the Treasury between 2010 and 2012, which was a role I think you had in opposition um, since December 2005. Um, and he's also been Shadow Minister for Schools. Um, uh, he's um, a dab hand uh, in the kitchen, we're told. Um, and he's also a dab hand, I have to say, I think, at providing us with, uh, with uh, provocative titles. Um, I'm not sure I'm a sceptic, but I am prepared to be confounded. Um, so uh, we're looking forward very much to hearing what you have to say, Mark, and over to you. Julian, thank you very much, and uh, it's great to be back here at the LSE. I have to say, I was talking to one of my fellow alumni earlier and commenting that uh, it wasn't quite like this in our day. Um, and it is a provocative title, but I do have an answer uh, to it. And um, I, I thought I'd just start off by uh, going back to 1985 when I graduated and um, just talking a little bit about what uh, unemployment was like then, and perhaps as a starting point for talking about how the labour market has changed and how unemployment has changed. Now, in the summer of 1985, uh, the claimant count, that's the number of people claiming unemployment benefit, uh, hit the 3 million mark. Uh, today, it's about half of that. Uh, back then, the unemployment rate was over 11%. And that's a huge number, uh, but a number which may not surprise people who can remember what things were like in the 1980s. But the claimant count is only one measure of, me of um, unemployment. The other measure, uh, the ILO definition, ask people if they're actively searching for a job. Now, normally, the ILO count is higher than the claimant count, as there'll be people who are looking for work but aren't eligible for benefits. Now, today, uh, while there are 1.5 million people claiming job seekers allowance, uh, the ILO measure is 2.5 million. Back in the 1980s, though, uh, the two measures actually converged at 3 million. So this suggests that a significant number of people claiming unemployment benefit weren't actually looking for work. So they were just resigned to a life on benefits, they are perhaps given up a search for a job, or perhaps they never even started looking in the first place. And what's worse, I think, is that they had been written off, uh, perhaps because they were seen as being too hard uh, to help. Now, thankfully today, I think things are rather different. Uh, unemployment is at a record high, with nearly 30 million people in work. Uh, One million jobs have been created in the private sector since 2010. I uh, find the sceptics who claim that business couldn't create enough jobs 
to replace those lost in the public sector. Unemployment fell again this quarter. That's the 11th month in a row that the official figures have shown a fall. And the rate is lower than at the time of the general election. And even though the numbers on job seekers' allowance are slightly higher than they were when they came into office, they've been offset by dramatic falls in the number of people on incapacity and loan parent benefits. Overall, the number of people on the main out-of-work benefits has fallen by 230,000 people since May 2010. And all this despite the tough economic times we know that we're going through. Now, you don't need me to tell you that falling in unemployment and record numbers of people in work comes at a time when the economy is still healing from the problems of the last decade. But it also comes at a time when many of our international competitors are struggling too. Now, in terms of the labour market, there are positive signs here in the UK compared to other countries. Over the last year, the UK's employment rate has risen faster than any other G7 country. Our employment rate is now higher than in the United States and well above that in the Eurozone. Our unemployment rate is lower than in the <coughs> EU average and lower than in both France, Italy uh, and Spain. It's also lower than the US. And crucially, inactivity rates in the US have now risen over two percentage points since 2008. And in comparison, inactivity rates in the UK are at a 20-year low. This means that while we're successfully moving people closer to the labour market, in the US the opposite is happening. People are losing heart and drifting into inactivity. Now I think this last point is, quite, is vital. Falling inactivity in the UK is particularly good news because inactivity is the worst of all situations. Inactivity means not only are people not working, but they're not looking for work either. Inactivity means people aren't earning money, so they're not paying their taxes or putting money back into the economy. So back in 1985, when inactivity and unemployment were increasingly blurred, some people were just claiming the dole, but not looking for work. Now, there's one overriding factor in this government's reforms of the welfare system. It's to make sure that people can no longer just sit on benefits, or to use the jargon that DWP uh, is renowned for, labour market activation. Now, of course, we should provide financial support for those who are ill or too disabled to work. But for those who are capable of work, then they should be doing everything they can to find employment in return for the support that taxpayers offer. I think part of the problem has been the benefit system has become bloated, complicated and mystifying. So much so that too many people are trapped on benefits. When people are realise they are better off on benefits than getting a job, where is the incentive to work? to provide for their families, to show up, show your children what it's like to get up every morning and go to work. So whilst it's obviously important for us to do all that we can to get people into work and make sure they're actively seeking for jobs, our reforms are, always desi- are also designed to help people who are a long way from the jobs market. People who have no history of work at all. People who may not have seen any of their family go to work. Now these people will inevitably be harder to help, but we're not going to be shying away from those difficult challenges. So to begin the process of getting people closer to the world of work, we're gradually moving people off inactive benefits like income support and incapacity benefits and giving them the help to find employment through the Job Seekers Allowance regime. Now for many this will be a long road. Now over one in four of the people on incapacity benefit who've been found fit for work after we reassessed them had been on incapacity benefit 
for over a decade, which I think shows the scale of the challenge, not just that they face, but also we face. But I think it's much better to have people in the labour market, even if it takes years of help to get them into work, than simply allowing them to sit on benefits for the rest of their lives with no hope of getting to work. That's why in 2010 we began to reassess around 1.5 million people on incapacity benefits to see if they are capable of some form of work or if they're still entitled to benefit. Now, we're halfway through that process, and since it began, nearly 180,000 people have been taken off sickness benefits and are getting help that they need to find work, which is right for them. Now, for lone parents, not long ago, they could stay on income support until their youngest child was 12. Now, that's 12 years away from the labour market and 12 years of a child's life where they don't see their parents going to work. What we've done, and I think the previous government started this, is to lower the age of the English child at which a lone parent can claim income support to five. And along with that, we've doubled the help, amount of help that lone parents get from Job Centre Plus while they're on income support to ensure that transition onto job seeker allowance and then into work is hopefully a smooth one. But about those who are uh, the long-term unemployed? To tackle that, we've introduced the work programme. Now, the reality is that most people who claim job seeker allowance aren't on there for too long. Over half of new claimants are off benefit within three months, and 85% are off within a year. But the longer someone does claim job seeker allowance, the danger is they move further and further away from the labour market. Now, we know that some people are more prone to long-term unemployment than others. Now, although unemployment is uh, lower amongst older people, we know that when they are out of work, they are more likely to still be looking for a job 12 months later. Lone parents are more likely to struggle to find work than parents who are married or living with a partner. We know that disability increases the likelihood of still looking for work at 12 months. And that people with higher qualifications have shorter durations of unemployment than people with low or no qualifications. Now, sometimes it simply takes people some, t- longer, uh, some people longer than others to find a job. Now, it may be that they're looking for the wrong type of work, or they need to fit something around their childcare, or want to find a job which allows them to work around their study. But even after claiming job seeks allowance of 12 months, four out of ten people will come off benefit in the next six months. But for those who don't manage to get off benefit quickly... The work programme is the biggest employment programme this country has ever seen, where providers from the public sector, private sector and voluntary sector give tailored support to people who are at risk of becoming long-term unemployed. While previous employment schemes paid too much money up front, the payment by results models which which we're using in the work programme means providers need to achieve results in order to make a profit. This is a clear incentive to innovate. Providers can earn up to £14,000 for helping the hardest to help into work. And that's £10,000 more than those who can work for, find work more easily. So what's happened in the work programme so far? More than 200,000 people have already got into a job. Now that's a lot of lives that have been transformed. And in some cases, people are working for the first time in many years or people who are at risk of spending the rest of their lives on benefits are now providing for their family. People who thought they would never work again have cause for optimism. And the work programme is even preparing people on sickness benefits to re-enter the world of work in a way that no other previous employment scheme 
has ever done. So instead of writing off people who might not be ready to work today, as happened in the past, we're saying that if you think you are well enough to work in the future, let's help you take those early steps now to prepare you for a job when your condition allows. I think maybe that some people will surprise themselves about what they're able to do. Now, it is new ground that we're breaking, because it will take some time for these claimants to get into work, particularly those who've been out of the labour market for some time. I think it will take some time for us to learn how best we can help them. But I think it's right that we try, and we make no apology for setting high expectations for what we think the work programme can achieve. Everything we're doing is about trying to help people move closer to work. Now, there are some who criticise us for pushing forward with these reforms, people who say that there aren't enough jobs out there, that we should wait until the good times return before we tackle these problems. Now, whilst it's true, I think there's much that should have been done when the economy was booming, too little was done in practice to address issues such as long-term unemployment and inactivity. That opportunity was missed. In fact, if we look at uh, where uh, new jobs have been created and who they've gone to, the majority of new jobs created went to people uh, from overseas. Entrenched problems remained, and it's vital that we address them now. But I think we can only do them by rebalancing our economy. Only by doing this will we create the jobs that people need. But the jobs market has proved to be robust in difficult times. The Office for National Statistics estimates that there are around half a million open vacancies in any one time, and that's more than there were a year ago. So compared to previous recessions or periods where there's been uh, low or minimal growth, the UK jobs market is much more robust. The action taken by the government has secured stability with interest rates near record lows, benefiting businesses and families. The deficit has been cut by a quarter over two years. But that's required a rebalancing from the public sector to the private sector. And we've seen over a million jobs, private sector jobs created since the general election, with private sector employment up by 65,000 in the last quarter alone. So even with the reduction in the number of people working in the public sector, Overall employment has risen by more than half in the last year and by nearly 90,000 since May 2010. Now, I think one of the reasons why the modern labour market is defying the sceptics is actually its flexibility. Now, take part-time employment and self-employment. Now, some people criticise when there's a rise in part-time jobs or they dismiss temporary jobs as somehow not real jobs at all. But I think the opposite is true. Since the general election, the rise in full-time employment, over half a million, has actually been larger than the rise in part-time employment, about 310,000. But that's still hundreds of thousands of people who are benefiting from the flexibility of part-time work. And over 80% of those in part-time work are working part-time by choice. Now, I think the benefits of part-time work are often overlooked. For people coming back to work from being long-term sick, or from loan parents who have income support, part-time work can be vital. Either as a stepping stone back to full-time work, or like that 80% who want to work part-time, as a way of fitting work in around uh, other responsibilities or managing a health condition. Part-time work can also be incredibly beneficial to older people, people who don't want to retire but don't want to be working full-time. And temporary jobs are also an excellent way for people to move into more permanent work, now, last year, much was made of Olympic's jobs boost, which people insisted was down to temporary jobs 
which mean a spike in unemployment when the games were over. And I spent my first couple of months in this job answering lots of questions on London regional news about when will this job spoon be over in London. The reality is actually that rise in unemployment has continued in London. But what's happened, I think, is that for many people, those temporary Olympic jobs in the hospitality sector, perhaps helping the Olympic Park, actually have given them the experience to help them move on into another post. And of course, it's important to remember that temporary work doesn't necessarily mean only doing the odd day here and there. There are thousands of people across the country who work seasonally, and they're counted as temporary workers, as indeed someone would be if they were on a two-year contract. Now, of course, some of them might want a permanent full-time job, but that doesn't suit everybody. And make no mistake, I think it's better for someone to be in a temporary job earning money and building up experience that could lead to their, them to their next job than for them to be out of work. And then the self-employment. It amazes me that people cons- consider that self-employment is a bad thing. I think that's wrong. At the moment, we have around 4.2 million people working for themselves. It's 140,000 more than a year ago. Some of them might always have dreamed of being their own boss. I've now seized the moment. Some of them might well be starting businesses that will become global names in a few years' time. In fact, we think that self-employment is a good thing. We've already had 15,000 unemployed business people set up their own businesses through the new enterprise allowance. It offers job seekers advice from a mentor and a small amount of financial help to get their idea off the ground. So from restaurants to play centres, from chocolate makers to electricians, from designers to stonemasons, we're helping people actually achieve their goal and seeing self-employment as a route out of unemployment. Now, no one's saying it's easy to take those first steps, but actually we're prepared to do our bit if job seekers show that they have some entrepreneurial flair and are prepared to put in hard work to make their job idea a success. So I think we have a flexible labour market that accommodates the aspiration of individual job, center, job seekers. Now, people of all kinds are using this flexibility to move into work. For example, there are now more women in work than ever before, up over 300,000 since the general election. Many are in full-time work, but lots are also employed part-time, and nearly 9 out of 10 of them are doing so because they want to do it and can do it. And I think there's been a shift in thinking. Employers realise the benefits of a flexible workforce, and therefore women are moving into employment in record numbers. I think we can also see this cultural shift in the way lone parents now engage with the labour market. As I mentioned, we now expect lone parents to to re-engage in work when their youngest child goes to school, and they are offered more help through Job Centre Plus. By reducing the number of years people can be inactive, keeping people closer to the world of work. Employers, too, are affecting this by offering school hours or term-time working. And we're expanding access to childcare to make it easier for women to get back to work by doubling the number of two-year-olds getting into nursery care. And there will be £200 million more of money, money going into childcare support under universal credit. So in tough times, I think it's important that the labour market is able to adapt. Yes, of course it takes knocks, such as recent closures on the high street. But with a flexible labour market workforces can be re-employed in more prosperous sectors. Now, for anyone to lose their job, it's a personal tragedy. But I don't think the answer is to prop up dying industries, simply delaying the inevitable and costing the taxpayer dear. But I think to find uh, new opportunities for people 
to move into new, more sustainable jobs. That's why, for example, we as a department have the Rapid Response Service, which moves in when there are a large number of redundancies. Now, it's always a difficult time for any workforce to be under threat of redundancy. But by helping them before they get their last paycheck, the chances of moving into a new job are greatly increased. So when Comet announced all its stores would close in December, making 6,000 people redundant, our teams went into those stores to meet staff, make them aware of training options and vacancies which were available in their area, and run jobs fairs up and down the country. That made it far more likely that those employees will move more quickly into another job rather than spending a longer time on benefits. And while no one wants a labour market where people can be made redundant at will, we need to make sure that employment laws do not actually restrict job creation. That's why my colleagues at the Department of uh, Biz are carrying a systemic review of employment law to see what changes are necessary through red tape to ensure that we get rid of unnecessary regulation. And if it's a sign of what's happening in the UK, when I spoke to my French uh, counterpart uh, a few weeks ago, the French are going through a similar process around employment law to see how they can make their, flex- their labour market more flexible to tackle some of the structural issues that they find. So I think that flexibility in the labour market means that uh, people who are out of work move into a job and change job quickly. Half a million people start a new job every month. And I think it's that dynamism and that flexibility which has helped the labour market to fight the economy in tough times. But I think this flexibility can also be seen if we look at jobs for young people. When we came into office, we inherited a big problem with youth unemployment. Despite supposedly having experienced a decade of economic boom, youth unemployment had been rising. And between 2008 and the general election, it went from below 700,000 to almost 950,000. And it's an issue that the coalition recognised was their priority. <coughs> now, the previous government had pumped millions of pounds into the Future Jobs Fund, giving young people a six-month job, mainly in the public sector, costing the taxpayer £6,500 a time, despite the fact that most jobs had little prospect of lasting beyond more than six months. And half the participants went straight on back onto benefits at the end of that six months. Now, I don't think that was a sensible approach. And an assessment of the scheme by the Treasury says that it may never recoup its money. Stone said what we've tried to do is to make sure there's a full package of support to young people to make sure they don't end up spending a long time on the dial. Now, one of the major complaints you hear from employers is that young people lack the skills and experience of work to justify taking a chance on them. So through our youth contract, we've made sure that young people have the chance to go on work experience, offering 100,000 places every year. We know it works because independent research has shown that you're, that you're far, more, far more likely to come up with benefits if you've taken part. And with each placement costing just uh, around £300, it's 20 times cheaper than the future job funds. We've also made more of the apprenticeships available, offered more support to the most hard-to-reach young people, those who might otherwise slip through the net, begin a life on benefits. And we're giving up to £2,275 to businesses as an incentive when they take on a young person who's been unemployed for more than six months. Now, we know that around 80% of young people who make a claim for job seeks allowance are offered again within six months. And by making sure that young people have the skills and experience employers want, and working with businesses to make it easy to get them to take on these individuals, we are ensuring they can get back into work quickly. And recently, the signs have been encouraging. 
The headlines often claim that just under a million young people are unemployed. It's important to remember about 300,000 of those are actually in full-time education. And youth unemployment has fallen by about 60,000 over the course of the last year. If you look at the numbers of young people on job seekers' allowance, that number has fallen by 65,000 over the course of the last 12 months. Now, let me be very clear. There are still too many young people who are unemployed, and we have a long way to go. But I think these are positive signs. And, of course, it's not just the number of young people who are unemployed that, that's changing. The number of young people in work is going up as well. And over the last quarter, the number of young people who finished full-time studies and, get, and who got into work rose by 66,000. So more young people in work, fewer out of work, and a bigger package of support available to young job seekers than ever before. But yes, there are still too many people, young people out of work, and there is plenty still to do. But by instilling a culture of work into our young people from early on, we can reduce the risk of them going on to lead a jobless life. Now, even as the labour market starts to strengthen, there's understandable concern that some people might get left behind. While we've seen, un- we've seen employment improve over the last year, it's only the past couple of months that long-term unemployment has looked like following suit. It does remain too high. Nearly 900,000 people are still without work, despite actively looking for a job for more than a year. A third of the total employment, unemployment figure, and more, more than twice the level before the recession. Now, since taking up my post in September, I've been trying to find out a bit more uh, about, about these figures, understand different uh, individual experiences of unemployment. I wanted to understand more fully how many people move into unemployment than actually out again quickly, having found another job. People are able to get back into work, but perhaps need a little bit of help and support to link them back up with that new job. I wanted to see whether the recession had led to more people experience unemployment for the first time, having always been in work before. Again, people who are well-placed to find a job, but who might be daunted by what's happened to them and need help to navigate the system and find the support that they need. And also to think about how many need more intensive support because they've already spent a long time on benefit. Perhaps hidden by short periods of pro- on programmes or on temporary work that didn't need to sustain employment. And I think that only by understanding these questions can we ensure that we have the right support in place to help people get back into work. So I asked the department to look at, look at these issues. And this week we're publishing some new analysis of people who have come on to JSA during the first year of this government. We're looking back at whether they've claimed JSA before, and if so, how much time had they previously spent on benefit. And looking forward to see what happened to them over the subsequent 12 months. I think the results provide some interesting insights into the opportunities and the challenges that we face. We found that many, many recent claimants have never previously been on JSA. And while others haven't spent very much time on benefit, even if they've claimed more than once. Over a quarter of people in the early 20s had no previous experience or history of claiming benefit, and over half had spent less than six months of the previous four years on JSA. However, it was also clear that for a minority of young people, they were spending a significant part of their early adult life dependent on benefits or some form of financial assistance, such as a training allowance. About one in ten of those people in their early 20s had spent more than half of the previous four years on benefit. And in most cases, it wasn't because they'd just come on to JSA 
and stayed there. It was often because, despite moving off benefits several times, they'd never managed to stay off benefit. They weren't sustaining a habit of work. And that's one of the reasons why the work programme pays not just after six months of work, but for every four weeks of employment after that. But we've also found this is not a new challenge. Very similar uh, claim histories can be seen in cohorts of claimants in the years leading up to the recession. So in 2010, when a group of young people who were coming onto JSA with a long history of claiming behind them, and perhaps not surprisingly, they were also much more likely to be on JSA a year on from their current claim. Now, compared to the younger counterparts, those coming on to JSA in their early 30s were more likely to be making a claim for the first time for a while. Four in ten of those in their early 30s joining JSA in 2010 had had no previous claim in the past four years. Now, this suggests, I think, more encouragingly, that many of those who spend time on benefit when they first enter the labour market are able to find a more settled pattern of work in their, uh, by the time they reach their early 30s. Just because you've claimed JSA as a young person does not mean you should expect to remain on the benefit system for years to come. Now, for most people, it does mean it takes time to find your feet and gain the experience that you need to build a more stable pattern of employment. But no generation has been lost, nor has any generation been written off. On the other hand, it highlights that the system that we inherited in 2010, whilst achieving some successes, had failed to address the serious problems of ingrained worklessness experienced by a small minority of claimants. Worse, it had probably it had largely hidden these problems by taking young people off JSA before they could show up as long-term unemployed, putting them onto a training allowance uh, instead. And it's one of the reasons to ensure we have this pattern of work and actually provide young people with support if they've been employed for a long, ter- long term, that we've introduced the work programme and helping the, some of those who are the furthest away from the labour market to get into a job. So I think in conclusion, there are lots of challenges that we still face. But despite the tough economic climate, the story of the labour market over the past 18 months has been a remarkably strong one. With the backdrop of the global economic crisis, sceptics would have expected us to be here today talking about falling employment, about rising unemployment and inactivity numbers going up. But instead, we have a record number of people in work, a million more private sector jobs since the election, unemployment is falling and inactivity is down. The resilience of the labour market has been remarkable. Its flexibility has allowed many of those who have lost jobs to bounce back quickly into work. And the support that we are able to offer means we're able to help people off benefits and into work as a reform of the welfare system progresses. I think the labour market has actually defied the sceptics. Thank you very much, uh, Mark. Uh, Well, um, Mark's kindly agreed agreed to answer some questions, so we're open to um, questions and queries. Maybe I could start, but just first yes. of all, by, by um, um, I mean, a striking thing about the about the rise in employment you mentioned is that it, it has not been accompanied by a rise in output, yes. and in fact, we've seen output as flat, um, and that that leads me to think about a number of things. I mean, that's only consistent with conventional economics if the real uh, cost of labour has fallen. 
um, the, the growth in employment at the same time as output claiming flat, um, which must mean that, um, and I suspect that a number of the measures that you put forward uh, do indeed bring down the cost of labour and the making the labour market more flexible and so on. Probably it's also partly due, though, to a fall in real wages, um, and I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that. Um, but also, it, a more worrying aspect is that it means there's a long-term loss in product... Well, there's a short-term loss in productivity. Um, and the question is, well, is that going to translate into a long-term uh, uh, loss of productivity, and in which case, impact for economic growth? Uh, and, you know, I think it's quite difficult, because I think we are... Uh, if we look at the unemployment figures, so they are, you know, certainly the claimant count is a particularly hard number. Um, you know, the labour force survey is something that's done on a regular basis. I, in every quarter's figures, are like forty thousand people sampled. So I, I, I sort of touchingly take labour market figures as quite a, quite a strong starting point. Uh, and I, I'm not sure what the economic answer is to this, to be honest. Um, uh, and I suspect there'll be many people here and elsewhere trying to work out why this has happened and what the economic rationale is and why is it that I think most independent forecasters and, and you know, the OBR have consistently overestimated the level of unemployment uh, given where we are in the economic cycle. I mean, it is clear that average wages uh, have fallen in real terms uh, and every month we publish the Labour Force survey uh, it does show uh, that um, real wages are falling. Uh, I suspect that we will find that some of the people coming into the labour market uh, have low productivity compared to the average uh, because if they come in from a long period off out of work uh, or have been looking after children perhaps their skills aren't as good as they could be and could get better uh, so they may well be a hit to, to productivity but I think there are many better minds than mine uh, puzzling over that particular uh, issue Okay um, Yes, um, Mr Frost uh, Thank you Just uh, <coughs> a flexible labour market require more regional um, flexibility in, in pay. And given that in parts of the country like Northern Ireland and the northeast, where I understand you come from, Mark, the government is such a large employer. Is there a role for the government in, in demonstrating or leading that, that flexibility? Is the size and dominance of the state as a, as a, as a consumer of labour um, restricting the development of the private sector in places like Belfast or Newcastle? I, I think it's um, you know, definitely the case that if you are I'm taking the North East, I'm much more familiar with than, than any region other than London and the South East. You know, there is a strong public sector there. It has been one of the reasons why um, unemployment rates in some parts of the North East have actually been comparable with those in the South East, where you've got a strong public sector base. I remember being um, bemused when I was uh, looking, hunting around for constituencies, that the unemployment rate in Durham was the same as that in Kensington and Chelsea. Uh, but when I thought about it more carefully, you have a university, a prison, uh, two local authorities, uh, you start to understand perhaps why unemployment is low as it, as it is. So, you know, clearly the adjustment in the northeast is a, is a challenge. I think one thing I would point out, though, and it's one of the stats I look out, out for every month when I get the figures, is to look at those regional uh, unemployment rates uh, and what's happening. And actually, we have seen um, strong employment growth outside of London. Uh, and we have seen it in the, the North East, Yorkshire and Humber, uh, the West Midlands. Uh, and you know, I think that's quite an encouraging sign. Unemployment rates are still too high, but we are seeing people who have perhaps been economically inactive come back into the, the labour market. Um, you know, that they've absorbed some of the job losses from the, from the public sector. And so there does appear to be, I think, a, 
um, a sort of tighter and a, a narrow degree of variation in the regional market, labour markets than has been before. And certainly talking to some of our, our analysts, if you look at uh, the 1980s, the disparity between, say, the southeast and the northeast was much wider uh, than it was prior to the recession and actually prior to, the, prior to it, is, it is now. So I think there is employment growth there, but I think it's flowing through yet into unemployment uh, numbers. But it does require more flexibility uh, in, those, in those markets. And also I think people are taking advantage of lower pay rates. Uh, so I was talking to one consultancy firm uh, that had a choice about where it did some of its IT testing. They currently did it in, in the southeast. You know, do they offshore it? Or as someone snappily described it, north shore it? Uh, and actually they were going to move their IT testing up to, to Newcastle because labour markets were cheaper. They could skill up um, you know, A-level students, graduates, and take advantage of that cheaper labour market to actually keep jobs in the UK and actually provide kind of valuable boost uh, to um, to the, the northeast economy. But I think there's a final point. I just sort of, sort of personal anecdote rather than rather than sort of proving uh, a, any particular theory. But I remember uh, prior to becoming MP, going out with a friend of mine from school, uh, same age, same social background, you know, graduate, and a group of similar people for similar demographic. Uh, at that point, I was the only person in the pri- working in the private sector. So there is an issue about where do well-skilled graduates go to if you want to stay in somewhere like the North East, and the public sector was very adept at hoovering them up. Gentlemen, next time, yes. Hello, yes, I, I, I work as a career coach, and I'm, as Professor Legrand was saying, um, and you're expressing puzzlement about our falling productivity. Um, I, I, with the people that I've spoken to and uh, people that I coach, there is an answer to this question um, as to why productivity seems to be falling. Um, you know, it's around human resources and how uh, how well managed organisations are. And if you look at British companies from an external perspective, um, you know, uh, for example, if you're a foreign company, you're thinking about investing here. I think they find British companies are, are, are relatively weaker because they're not, they haven't got the same skills, they haven't got the competitiveness, they, have, they don't invest in training. Uh, and therefore, if one was to address productivity, you need to look at you know, human factors like that and ask the education and training <coughs> what we can do to improve level of skills, the quality of skills before we can go out to the labour market. And management inside organisations, what can we do to stimulate companies to invest in training because they're not spending the money? No, uh, no, I think that's a valid point. And I think one of the uh, challenges, if you look, uh, I'm not sure what the most recent figures are, but if you look at some of the OECD comparisons, the show we have a higher proportion of young people going into higher education than most of our competitors, but a lower proportion going into uh, post-16 education. Uh, so we're not seeing people uh, going into you know, um, NVQ Level 3s to some of the more technical qualifications, uh, and that actually does help back business. I, I, went, I saw an aerospace business uh, locally that was actually literally dying on its feet because it hadn't actually recruited any apprentices for 30 years. And all its employees were getting towards their 50s and 60s and either retiring or dying. Uh, and actually it's very difficult to compete with the best in the world if you don't do that. Uh, and so I think we are seeing a, a much greater emphasis now through many put into apprenticeships. I think tr- companies recognise particularly in the... Um, high-end manufacturing that they need to train to be competitive in the global race. Uh, they can't just assume they can make, make do with, with old techniques or manufacturing processes. 
uh, and I think they're starting to, to recognise it. I think there's another issue from my, from my perspective, which we DWP need to think about. You know, we're launching Universal Credit at the end of next month. It will be a seamless in and out of work benefit. Uh, one of the things we're looking at is how do you uh, incentivise those people who are uh, in work but not earning enough to actually increase their earnings. Yeah, so we are, we're scrapping the 16-hour-a-week rule that creates flexibility for part-time workers. So you know, it creates more opportunities for people to work longer, uh, work more hours. But what we're trying to do at the moment is work out how we can encourage the people who are working part-time to be training in the rest of the week. You know, what is it that colleges can offer to help people upskill? Are there things that we should be doing in terms of um, you know, online courses, for example, that people can access in their own time and at their own pace? That will help them increase their earning capacity. And so I do think there are lots of different ways we need to, to look at this. But I think that um, you know, the launch of Universal Credit does give an opportunity to help people upskill and move up the, the earnings progression. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, to use a relatively simplistic academic dichotomy, do you think that the unemployment uh, in the UK at the moment is mainly from kind of frictional unemployment or structural unemployment? And with regards to your answer, <coughs> which, do you, which policy would you pursue, uh, or what, what do you think the answer is to that form of unemployment that you think is easiest to tackle in the, in the current conditions? Well, I, I think that... Um, I mean, clearly, I think there are people who are out of the labour market who are some distance from the labour market. And I think that I put that's some, some of the structural issues. I think it's, a, it's an economic issue about how you employ them. Uh, but I think there are people who are some distance from the labour market. Uh, and, you know, I go back to the way in which we're reassessing people who've been on the incapacity benefit. Many of them have been out of the labour market for some time. Uh, getting them into, getting them finding the right job will be a challenge. And getting work ready will be a challenge. I think on the, the frictional empo- unemployment side, I think one of the things that the department has uh, used to do is historically, or see itself historically, is a labour exchange, trying to match people who are unemployed with, with employers. And I think we had partly lost sight of, of, of that. And I think one of the reasons why we're seeing uh, a reduction in job seeking allowance is actually where we are matching people better with employers. Uh, we launched uh, something called Universal Job Match, which um, simplistically could be described as an online dating agency for employers and potential employees. That helps create that, that match uh, and improve uh, the function of the labour market. So I think there are things we are doing that will improve how quickly people who've lost a job will get into work. Uh, um, uh, but I think there are some, some fairly deep-seated issues which I think are quite challenging to tackle, which is around... You know, not only how far somebody is this from the labour market, but also how willing employees are to take on uh, those people. Yes. Thank you. Uh, my name is Colin Crooks. I'm a social entrepreneur and I've employed lots of people in very difficult parts mm. of the world, in Liverpool and Brent and stuff. And I've got one sh- small question about just a quibble about your million jobs in the private sector, because as I understand it, 250,000 of those are lecturers that have been reframed no. from public to private, but I'd like to have that qualified. But my bigger issue is, is what can we do about what I would call structural unemployment of the millions, I think in from my calculations it's six to six and a half million people that are workless, and a very substantial number of those are very low skilled, 
and living in areas that we are highly renowned for being deprived and having deprived for decades. Um, and those, when you look at the data for those areas, that doesn't move very much. And when you reflect on the work programme and the, the, the evidence that seems to be quite clear now of creaming and parking those very hard to employ people, this seems to be very prominent in those areas. So what can we do, what are you doing to relieve areas of very high levels of unemployment and low skill to, to get levels of employment up to even that close to the average? Right. Well, first of all, the million new jobs. Let me be very clear. There, is a, there has been a reclassification of the FE sector from the public sector to the private sector. But actually, a million new jobs is, takes that into account. So that quarter million shift it's an is in addition to that. Um, so that's something we're very clear about. And it, I think the, the, I think a couple of months after that shift took place, it was certainly, it was certainly highlighted in the Labour Force Survey, the, the, the document that the ONS produced. So you know, this is a, actually a genuine uh, new jobs in the, in the private sector. On the, on the work programme, you know, I think that the results that we published in November, you need to bear in mind that that was uh, the first 14 months of the programme. It had taken, I think, six, seven months for providers to get their act together in the mobilisation uh, phase. Uh, you, if you look at the monthly performance, you could certainly see uh, in the first four months of year two quite a big ramping up uh, in performance. Uh, and the fact that 200,000 people had found work through the work programme, uh, these are stats published by the Trade Association alongside our data, I think does show uh, that uh, performance is improving, but it does take longer to build up. Partly, I think, because of the people it's helping. You know, they are these you know, people who have been unemployed for a year can have a range of issues which mm-hmm. will, make them, will make it harder for them to get into work, and therefore the time you spend getting to work may be longer there would be someone who's come straight off another job. Uh, and you know, I think that the, you, know, you will see, I think, improved performance flow through. We've got another set of figures coming out uh, in May, uh, and I think they will uh, show uh, quite a change from the figures published uh, in, in November. I, th- I think on the issue of uh, parking creamy, I, I, you know, I do think some people w- will take longer to get into work. Uh, but also when I visited work programme providers... Uh, I, you know, I have seen some very good examples of uh, how they help people who are difficult to place get into work. So my very first visit was to provide in, in Southampton uh, who had helped someone who, ha- who was both homeless and suffered from depression find full-time employment. You know, so I think the evidence there can be done. I think there's a challenge around the number of people with uh, health conditions coming into the work programme and are the volumes there to ensure there's a good solution. But I think that's work that they are, they are doing. I think on the issue of um, you know, regions like the North East, you know, which is you know, one where you know, the unemployment rate is still higher than the national average, has been for some time. I think if you look at employment, that's, that is going up uh, quite significantly. There's been quite a big increase in employment over the course of the last year. So I don't think that's a hopeless uh, situation, but I think low levels of skills are an issue. And certainly if I, you know, I talk to the chief executive of the North East Chamber of Commerce, his comment was actually they are suffering a skills shortage in the North East. Um, you know, and I think that, that does show you know, a real need to raise the level of, of skills. Uh, and it is you know, partly why we're looking at skills alongside universal credit, partly alongside the uh, apprenticeship scheme, 
But also I think there's another problem, and it's about, um, it's about people with low qualifications and how they get into work and how they get on to ladder towards progress. Because actually if you come into the labour market and you have no or low skills, you, you are at risk of cycling through the labour market quite often. Uh, you're not necessarily very attractive to an employer, uh, and an employer might find it easier to recruit someone with, more, with you know, existing qualifications rather than take a risk with someone with no qualifications. So one of the aspects of the youth contract is to provide support to employers who will take somebody on through work experience, through sector-based work academy, uh, perhaps through the wage incentive, providing some funding to help them train. But also there are a number of employers who see it not as part of their corporate social responsibility, or if they did that, that would be laudable, but actually part of their business model to grow their own staff, to take people on with low levels of skills, give them a qualification, uh, and hope that they will grow, go through their business, but equally be relaxed if they leave their business. So uh, TNT Post, which is a, operating quite a big mail, daughter of mail delivery system now in, in London, starting to grow, will take people who've been unemployed for the long term with no qualifications. They will train them to a le- level two MVQ. You know, they will provide progression opportunities to supervise uh, teams, to open a new office. You know, and that's actually quite a good opportunity for people with entry-level skills to get into to work. But I think it's one of the biggest challenges, is how do you get people with those entry-level skills into a job and into a career where there's progression? Go back to the point raised by a gentleman with about who's a career coach. Actually, if you can get them into, get them a level two NVQ, then actually they become competitive for the NVQ level three. Without that level two, they're just not competitive. So we do need, and I'm working with employers who are prepared to take on uh, young people with no skills to get them up that career ladder. Land security, so we seem to be developing most of Victoria Street at the moment, you know, will take on people from Westminster with no skills, or they require the supply chain to do it, to actually train them construction skills and get them up there. So there are some really good examples of where it can work, but I think we need to get more employers on board with the message that you can grow your own, and the way to tackle your skills gap is not to buy in skills, but to train people up yourself. The lady at the back, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I'm Professor Ruth Chapman, and I've been involved in um, getting people like in, in East university uh, graduates in, in Eastern Europe um, into um, starting their own businesses and, and entrepreneurship. And I just was wondering how in the scheme of things you're encouraging people to actually start their own businesses, which is a, another way of creating employment. And maybe even from, from rather than like what I'm doing postgraduate, but from a, a younger age, because that, that creates lots, not only lots of employment, it creates self-learned skills and skills from others who can teach others. And it's, it's uh, quite amazing. It's done a lot, for example, like in, in Poland, where they have 16% unemployment rate, which was even higher for young people about six years ago, and that's gone down tremendously since they started introducing um, ideas of um, entrepreneurship and having a lot of mentors and and going to the universities and actually saying, okay, well, you have this skill and that skill, why not use it, think about it, and use it for uh, creating uh, your own business where you can work as a team and employ others? Yeah, no, I think that's really powerful, and I, you know, we have seen a quite significant increase in the number of people in self-employment. It's going to buy by 140,000. Yeah, well, so what do we do? So what, you know, why is that happening? I'm not saying it's all down to us. Uh, but what, you know, so, for example, 
we have the new enterprise allowance, which is available for the first day someone claims job seekers allowance. If they have a business idea, we will put them alongside a mentor uh, who will work with them on their business plan, uh, work out uh, how it can be made viable, and if the mentor signs off their business plan, then we will pay them a, an allowance for 26 weeks whilst they're getting their business off the feet. Uh, and so that's thing that we've done that's quite, I think it's quite <coughs> practical uh, to give financial support and the mentoring I think is needed to help businesses grow. And you know, it is, it's now, I think, led to over 15,000 new businesses being started by people previously being unemployed. And we're starting to see some of the benefits uh, from that. So there's a, um, I was in Grimsby uh, a few weeks ago where you know, they had actually found a huge appetite in somewhere, in somewhere like Grimsby where things were quite tough for self-employment. Someone had come with a business idea, they set up their own business, they, they, they then started to take on their own staff. Uh, on the work programme, you know, some very good examples of Avanta that operate in the northeast. You know, see self-employment as a route, and actually will work with someone to say, you know, what are you interested in? You know, what, what motivates you? What, what is it that you have as a skill or an interest that can be converted into money-making activity? Uh, and I think that's quite a positive route. So I think there's a lot there that's happening. I think more could be done. I think we do need to encourage more people to and to see uh, self-employment as a route out. And as young, when I was trying to ask us, young people, for example, in teams, yeah. not just individual, but actually getting them to work as a team, teaching them team building skills and management skills so that they can actually carry on a viable business because that's essential to carrying on a viable business to be able to manage and work as a team. Yeah, no, and I think there are skills that you know, people need to get a business, anyone needs to get to be, to be in a business. And I, you know, we are, you know, university schools will have their own programs on that, but we are, what we're trying to do is identify ways which provides financial support. So one of the things that um, we're doing is setting up a, a loan scheme for young people not dissimilar in design to the student loans to enable them to take out a loan to grow their business if a bank won't back them. So there are some, you know, there are some things we do, but I, I, you know, I expect there's a lot more we could do to promote uh, employment as an, a self-employment option. But also, I think, to think about the role that further education colleges and universities can play in uh, leading people on to be entrepreneurs as well and seeing that as, a valid, as equally valid route as, uh, as employment. Yes. Um, I work predominantly with um, SMEs, and one of the things that I keep on hearing is even though they have capacity to take on more employees and they want to expand, the cost of labour is too high. I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts on that are. Well, and I think that um, I wonder if, if it is the cost or just the red tape around employment that's the. The problem, because you know, I don't the think raising is, is the tax and the, ta- and the contributions that they need to make are too high, especially for an SME where the budget isn't as, as big. Um, they find that that is, is a huge hurdle for them taking on more employees. Yeah, and so they, you know, they're not only will obviously have to pay the employee salary, the PAYE, PAYE employees contribution comes out of the employee salary, but also employers' national insurance as well. And I think you know, we uh, asked uh, businesses when we designed the wage incentive, would they prefer a, a single cash sum or a national insurance uh, holiday, uh, national insurance holiday, and they said they would like to prefer the single cash sum. Um, so in a way, that's you know, it's paid after they have somebody in work for more than six months. So there's a, a control over it. But you know that was a response to business 
need about some of the, reflecting some of the costs. But I do think for businesses it can be a challenge taking on uh, people who perhaps have been unemployed for a while. Uh, I think there are some very imaginative schemes going on at the moment in, on either a geographical or sectoral basis to make it easier for SMEs to recruit someone on a part-time basis. Uh, and in East Cheshire and, in fact, in the arts sector, looking to establish a body that will, will recruit uh, apprentices uh, and then loan them out to SMEs. So rather than taking a full-time person, they can take on some for, perhaps for two or three days a week or for a particular project. So it's giving young people or the employers a real skill without burdening the business with too much by way of cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, I just um, wanted, I suppose, to, to, to ask uh, a couple of questions, um, and they're in relation to some of the points that you, you've made. And um, I suppose the first would be, um, you know, kind of I think individuals mentioned about structural problems about employment. But um, uh, one, one issue I think you know, one, one faces is uh, such as uh, office, when, when one looks at office space, for instance, um, particularly in West London, so for instance in Hammersmith and North Kensington, uh, in those areas, you have some very um, uh, kind of poor areas, and so it's very well saying you know, encouraging individuals to try to set up companies or, or set up business and so forth. But you've actually got a very very small amount of uh, office space, whereas in other areas of London, South East London, you have actually kind of fairly large uh, amounts of office space. But again, the uh, the actual rent is is uh, it, it tends to be be, be, be relatively high. And um, obviously, one's been talking about converting a lot of these office spaces to uh, uh, flats and so forth, and that's actually only going to drive up uh, price of office space in, in, in some areas and access to, to such things. So, I mean, you know, what can be done to actually try to encourage, I suppose, more hubs for businesses and start-up businesses um, with county councils and, and so forth? Well, I, mean, I think that's a, uh, um, and there's a limit even to the reach of DWP. Yeah. Uh, in the situation, but I think that's something that I think um, because with, with rates, uh, because obviously rates is another issue. Because when you talk about SMEs and companies and so forth, then obviously you, you, you've got rates which are actually 41 percent yes. on top of costs. So. Yes, but I think you know, one of the things that uh, local authorities and will need to think about increasingly as they uh, retain a greater share of business rates, they have an incentive to growing business in their in their area and ensuring the infrastructure is there for business growth. And I was talking to um, one major uh, employer who found they couldn't get a planning application through for a, a hotel in Camden. You know, that was, that, you know, their hotel would have employed a large number of young people, uh, long-term unemployed, but actually what, there was no, int- no economic interest from the local authorities because they weren't going to capture the business rate increase from that. So you know, we need to think about how we incentivise and others to deliver the space that people need and the economic opportunities uh, that are there for them. And, and the other point was, um, is there anything, have you had any thoughts on about um, what one can do? You know, some companies, there has actually been inflation of the kind of qualifications they require. Um, I, I read an article, I think, in, 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 in I think the, the Telegraph about two months ago about a law firm where even uh, individuals in the post room had uh, 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 degrees. Um, and all 98 employees of the law firm had degrees, um, including people that were uh, clerks and, and so forth. And that was here, here, here in the uh, in, 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 in uh, the inner temple, I think. And, and, and that seems to me mad. Uh, not only are you driving up your cost, probably, but and it's nice to say we've got 91 employees, all of them who have degrees, two, 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 one or better or something. But it seems quite mad to me. But I mean, that's obviously a choice that they've made. Yeah. I think what we are also seeing, though. Is they, can, they can obviously make 
people, uh, grads take lower salaries, no. clearly. So when they could actually be equally employing people, and you're talking about social responsibility. So, so how can we encourage firms? It's nice that some firms are socially responsible, but how can we encourage firms to be socially responsible? Well, I, th- I think you know, firms will either decide to do so because it, it makes them feel happy about themselves. Um, but also, I think that there are uh, businesses who you know, aren't in a position to employ 91 graduates, including people to make graduates to make the tea, um, who are looking at different models. So, and so probably, let me just answer. Let me answer your. Let me answer. Let me answer your question. Uh, you know, I think what we are seeing is, and particularly as a consequence of the changes in tuition fees and student maintenance is a number of large employers starting to th- re- rethink their employment model. Uh, and so you do find that my old employees, PricewaterhouseCoopers, now take on a you know, significant number, number of young people post-A-level uh, to train out to be chartered accountants. And so I think you know, people are responding uh, to that. I think part of it is also about uh, how comfortable uh, firms feel in taking on people who are harder to, to help. So I went to see... Um, a project run by Business Action Homelessness, which is uh, within the sort of business printers' trusts of umbrella <coughs> of charities, and we went to see uh, went to Freshfields just down the road, and um, met some people currently on the scheme, some graduates of the scheme who were working for Freshfields. What became quite apparent was that a number of the people working on the scheme were ex-cons, and actually some one was out on licence. And the point that Freshfields made was, if we can do it, everybody else can do it. And so sometimes I think it's a, a show-and-tell element of, of this, and demonstrating you know, big, high-profile employers like Freshfields and others, demonstrating that actually we can offer these opportunities, we can take a risk on people, the risk will be managed appropriately, but we can do this. If we can do it, you can do it. Uh, and so I do think that you know, there's a... Employees need to change their, their mindset. And as, as I think the labour market gets tighter, then they will need to think about who, you know, what their recruitment model is and who to get on board. Okay. Um, let me go there. Hello. Um, what role do you think um, mandation has played in um, this positive labour market picture and uh, encouraging people back into it? As I speak as somebody who works for a charity that's received quite a lot of reputational grief because we provide work experience yeah. and have more promised. Uh, in weeks to come, and um, interested in whether you feel it has had a, a positive role. Sorry, what's mandation? It's requiring people to do something in return for their benefits. Please, Jim. You know yeah, yeah, so I am too. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in the last few weeks thinking about mandation. Um, yeah, I, I actually think mandation is really powerful, uh, and yeah, I think that the evidence shows that that mandation does actually get people to do some right things to take up the opportunities that are that are on offer, who might otherwise not do that. And you know, I think it is uh, you know, quite a difficult uh, area. But I think that there's a, there's a bargain here, I think, between the taxpayer on the one hand and people looking for work on the other. And the taxpayer is prepared to provide financial support through job seeks allowance. We are prepared to fund the cost of training. Uh, we're prepared to, you know, to uh, facil- facilitate the provision of uh, work experience. We're prepared to offer those uh, that assistance to get into work, but we require, on the other hand, the job seeker take up those offers. And if they don't take up that offer, then you know, they are sanctioned and, and lose their benefit. Uh, and actually, I don't want to be in a position where I'm taking benefit off people. That's not really what I'm into, 
we're into. Actually, we'd rather people just did it and had their work experience. Uh, and you know, the uh, evidence actually shows that the schemes where there is mandation are very effective. It does require people to do work, and most of them do uh, take up the offer of, of support, and a small minority don't. So I think it is the right thing to, to do. Uh, it's not in breach of people's human rights. The courts ruled on that relatively recently. Uh, and I would say to those who uh, are putting pressure on those who actually offer this opportunity, that actually what's happening is those who are opposed to it are denying people the opportunity to get the help to get back into work. And I don't know who they think they're helping, but they're not helping the unemployed. Uh, and I think that uh, some of the campaigns that have been run uh, have really lost sight of what we're actually trying to, to achieve. So thank you. Yeah. Would you perhaps publish it? Yeah, no, we do, we do regularly, but I will, I will we'll publish some more. But I'm really you know, keen that we don't lose the opportunity to help people get back into work. And often things like the mandatory work activity, work experience, the work programme, uh, the range of schemes we're doing to help young people back into work are really powerful. If we don't do them, actually we'll, we'll get, people will not get closer to the labour market. They get further and further away. I'm only persuading about the values of work experience. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to ask you. Yeah, no, well... You know, when major big brand charities are looking out, yeah. how can you help those who want to stay with it uh, by publishing some evidence? Yeah. Show the benefits. I think there's a difficult balance, right, because actually what we don't want to do is create a sort of panic in the sector. But I think I'm, I'm, I sort of feel at the moment that we need to take a much more bullish role and, and portray the merits of this and, and actually back the people who've, who provide the opportunity for people to get closer to the labour market too. We're getting near the end now, um, so uh, I think two more questions, uh, one here yep. and then one there. Yes, uh, we're, incidentally there's a glass of wine waiting for us out there, so, uh, uh, <coughs> so uh, don't, don't <coughs> hurry yourselves. Um, yes? Um, so I'm a student here at the LSE and our union uh, likes to focus on, as you've been mentioning and you touched upon it quite explicitly then, um, with regards to these sort of schemes and particularly they are very strongly opposed and students have been taken to court for the various welfare schemes which have the Court of Appeals ruling against it. Do you worry that there will be more of these court challenges and do you think that these are damaging to government policy and do you think you'll be able to implement the schemes without too much trouble? Well, the first thing is the the latest case, Wilson-Riley, the Court of Appeal said actually the the state government is right to require people to do something in return for unemployment benefits. Uh, it is consistent with Human, uh, Human Rights Act, the ECHR, and uh, that we, you know, we should have no problem doing where, where they had an issue was they felt our regulations should be more detailed than they were. So they quashed the regulations the same day they published the, um, their judgment. We put new regulations in place that enable mandation to continue and provide the requisite level of, of detail. And I think that um, one of the things that struck me, and I did quite a lot of media on that, on that day, but from 10.30 through in the morning through to the news night uh, that night, was actually the vast majority of people agree with us. Uh, and, you know, I was, did Five Live and Sheila Fogarty was complaining that all the texts she had were in support of the government's position, um, which I thought was good. But I think that actually most people think there's a sense of fairness that if we are going to provide significant financial support to those who are out of work, and you know, the, the JSA costs about uh, £4.8 billion, pounds. if we're going to provide support through the work programme, uh, through skills training, uh, that people who would benefit from that should do it. 
And if they don't do it, then they should lose their benefits. Uh, and so I do think there's a very clear uh, sense there of a, of a bargain that is struck that is about fairness. Uh, and that, you know, those who can't work through illness or through anything else, that's fine. There should be a safety net for them. And that's absolutely right. There's a financial support. But those who are able to work, we need to, do, we need to get them close to the labour market. Mandation is one of the active labour market policies, and it does actually demonstrate it's effective in getting people into work. Uh, so I do think it's the right thing to do, and I'm reassured that actually most people think it's the right thing uh, to do as, as well. Last question. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, I'm Kenta Shaw from Sydney's Advice, and we see every day people who are um, really struggle as a result of the hardship caused by foundation um, when actually um, they haven't had the support they need to get into work, as, as, as you know, we've raised many times. Actually, my, my question really is supposed to be something else, but I, I need to mention a conditionality foundation. And the evidence for it, we'd love to see more evidence of the fact that actually foundation really, really works, but there's a lot of international evidence that doesn't find that sanctions conditionality help people to get into work and set them up into sustainable jobs. Maybe off to a safer time. There's a big difference between coming off benefits mm. and, and getting jobs, and I think that's one of the concerns um, that we don't currently measure properly. People come off benefits, where do they go? And that's it, that's a big issue with people um, coming off and past the benefit um, and going on to JSA or going on to nothing, um, either because of the new time limiting rules on entitlement to ESA or because they come off in past the benefit. Um, and, and simply can't cope with the JSA regime and don't get the support. My, my question actually really was about um, jobs and um, particularly looking at the, picking up some issues about regional um, unemployment and challenges in particular um, labour markets. Um, and uh, I think some of, I can tell you that some of the policies of benefit reforms that are coming in uh, from April, but and have already started coming around, um, capping and uh, entitlement to housing benefit, whether it be in the social rental sector or the private rental sector, I mean that actually people getting and um, being able to afford to live in places where there's jobs is going to be hard and many people will be forced out of, of areas where there's jobs, so they going to have to travel much further to get to, to work or actually not going to find, to find work at all. And obviously if you're travelling further to work and you're on a very low paid job on minimum wage, then actually making that job viable, um, particularly if you've got children, is going to be very difficult. So one is, is about um, jobs for in particular areas that people might need to, to move to because of housing benefit changes um, and, and the changes in union security. And secondly, around um, jobs that pay um, for um, people who are reliant on childcare because we were concerned that in the universal credit, that many people will face quite a significant cut in the amount of childcare support that they're going to get um, in comparison to the current system. What, what's, what's the question? <laughs> what are we doing about creating jobs and enable people to get jobs? that um, make work pay um, firstly if they have to move to areas where there aren't the jobs and secondly um, if they have to pay quite high childcare costs um, they will again be stuck if working sort of 16, 20 hours and not be able to progress in work because they simply can't afford the childcare when it, they reach that limit of, of their own health ok well first of all on the benefit cap it does not apply to people who are working more than 16 hours a week Yes, I wasn't thinking of benefit caps. No, but, but you actually talked about the benefit cap. When you talked about changes to housing and benefits, actually, the be- and the caps, that's where the benefit cap is. So if someone is uh, in work doing 16 hours, then the benefit cap doesn't apply to them. Okay? No, that's the first one, and it's the amount of childcare. No, well, but let's do, you know, that's the second question. Let me get the first one mm-hmm. right. And actually, what we've been doing is you know, working with people affected by the benefit cap uh, to find ways in which we can help them. 
uh, whether it's moving into into work, which is the best way to, to tackle this, um, or to find whether there's a solution. For those people who can't move, then you've got discretionary housing payments, which have been topped up quite significantly in this government, to tackle some of the issues. So I think we need to be very clear about the benefit cap. It doesn't apply to those who are in work. Okay? Then on universal credits, here's big, you know, I think you know, we are projected £200 million into childcare for universal credits. Uh, we're also dropping the rule that says you can only have childcare if you're working more than 16 hours a week. So actually, people who are working less than 16 hours a week will qualify, char- qualify for childcare in the way they're doing it at the moment. You know, so I do think actually it's going to help. Uh, you know, and of course, what we sought to do is introduce more generous work allowances. Uh, get the taper right. So I think it's it's a question of looking at all of those those factors. Because the other thing is, is, is think about the cost of childcare as well. Uh, and that's why my colleague Liz Truss is looking at what can we do to reduce the cost of childcare uh, to make it more affordable, not just for those on benefit to work, but actually those who aren't claiming benefits uh, to work and get proper childcare. You know, so I think we are very alive to to these concerns. So my final point about. Um, about sanctions, I said, I don't want to sanction anybody. I'd rather they just did what we have to do and do what they need to do to get into work. There are situations where people are sanctioned. Uh, you know, there are hardship payments there uh, for those who are sanctioned. You know, but in this, the toughest sanction, which is someone losing their benefit for three years, they've actually got to turn down a reasonable job offer three times to get to that point. So you know, I don't think anyone should uh, go away with the idea we're sanctioning people willy-nilly or without a good reason. Uh, and that we, that we don't have the protection in place to uh, help people uh, who are suffering financial loss as a consequence. You know, so I think there are some difficult things to do. It does part, form part of our uh, labour market activation programme. I think it's a key part of our, the tools. But I think it does actually help people move closer to work by taking the advantage of the help that's been offered, uh, whether it's through the work programme, by charities offering work experience. You know, it's there to help people. I think the taxpayer has an expectation that where help is offered, it's taken. Okay, well, um, I always think you can measure the quality of a talk by the quality of the questions that follow. We've had some very high-quality questions, we've had some very high-quality answers to those questions, and we've had an extremely high-quality talk. Thank you very much indeed, Mark.